We read God's word tonight in Matthew chapter 15. Matthew chapter 15, we're going to read the first 31 verses of the chapter. Our text is verses 21 through 28. Matthew 15, beginning at verse 1. Then came to Jesus scribes and Pharisees, which were of Jerusalem, saying, Why do thy disciples transgress the tradition of the elders? For they wash not their hands when they eat bread. But he answered and said unto them, Why do you also transgress the commandment of God by your tradition? For God commanded, saying, Honor thy father and thy mother, and he that curseth father or mother, let him die the death. But ye say, Whosoever shall say to his father or his mother, It is a gift, by whatsoever thou mightest be profited by me. And honor not his father or his mother, he shall be free. Thus have ye made the commandment of God of none effect by your tradition. Ye hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy of you, saying, This people draweth nigh unto me with their mouth, and honoreth me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. But in vain they do worship me, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men. And he called the multitude, and said unto them, Hear and understand, not that which goeth into the mouth defileth a man, But that which cometh out of the mouth, this defileth a man. Then came his disciples and said unto him, Knowest thou that the Pharisees were offended after they heard this saying? But he answered and said, Every plant which my heavenly Father hath not planted shall be rooted up. Let them alone. They be blind leaders of the blind. And if the blind lead the blind, both shall fall into the ditch. Then answered Peter and said unto him, Declare unto us this parable. And Jesus said, Are ye also yet without understanding? Do not ye yet understand that whatsoever entereth in at the mouth goeth into the belly and is cast out into the drought? But those things which proceed out of the mouth come forth from the heart, and they defile the man. For out of the heart... Proceed evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, blasphemies. These are the things which defile a man. But to eat with unwashed hands defileth not a man. Now begins the words of our text through verse 28. I'm not going to reread that section again. Then Jesus went thence and departed into the coasts of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a woman of Canaan came out of the same coasts and cried unto him, saying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, thou son of David. My daughter is grievously vexed with the devil. But he answered her not a word. And his disciples came and besought him, saying, Send her away, for she crieth after us. But, and that probably should be and, and he answered and said, 
I am not sent but unto the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Then came she and worshipped him, saying, Lord, help me. But he answered and said, It is not meet to take the children's bread and to cast it to dogs. And she said, Truth, Lord, yet the dogs eat of the crumbs which fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered and said unto her, O woman, great is thy faith, be it unto thee even as thou wilt. And her daughter was made whole from that very hour. And Jesus departed from thence and came nigh into the sea of Galilee and went up into a mountain and sat down there. And great multitudes came unto him, having with them those that were lame, blind, dumb, maimed, and many others, and cast them down at Jesus' feet, and he healed them. Insomuch that the multitude wondered when they saw the dumb to speak and the maimed to be whole, the lame to walk and the blind to see, and they glorified the God of Israel. To that point we read the holy and inerrant words of Jehovah God. Beloved of God, verse 21 of the text tells us that Jesus left the territory of Israel and went to Tyre and Sidon. If you can picture the outline of Palestine in your head. And this, take this to be the Sea of Galilee and the Dead Sea down here at the bottom. Tyre and Sidon are up here northwest corner along the Mediterranean Sea, part of the region called Phoenicia, the two greatest cities of Phoenicia. Tyre and Sidon are Gentile territory. In the context, the Lord Jesus has been hearing faithless responses to his preaching and miracles. It goes all the way back to chapter 14, and each episode from 14 to our text runs along this pattern of Jesus doing a mighty work, and then there is a faithless response. Back in chapter 14, verse 15, Jesus fed the 5,000, and you remember, children, don't you, the response of the people to Jesus feeding the 5,000? They all gathered round like a big mob and they wanted to make him a king, an earthly king over Israel. And when he refused, what do we read? We read that they all said, forget about him then, and they went away. Right after that, verse 22 of chapter 14, the Lord walks on the water of the Sea of Galilee out to his disciples who are in a ship on the sea. And remember that Peter wanting to walk on the water with the Lord, gets out, and while he's looking at Christ, he is walking on that water, and then he looks away, and he begins to sink. And Jesus says to him, O ye of little faith, why do you doubt? In our chapter, beginning in verse 1, the Pharisees come to Jesus and accuse him of sinning because he and his disciples eat without washing their hands, which was a command of the Pharisees. And Jesus says, it's not what goes into your mouth, but what comes out that defiles a man. The Pharisees are faithless 
and unbelieving. But then Peter himself does not understand and asks Jesus to explain. And the Lord responds, and are you still without understanding? Faithless response, one after the other, and then... Jesus leaves and goes to Tyre and Sidon. And that's the first word of our text, then. After all of these faithless responses, he goes to this woman. And the faith that God gives to this woman is to stand in stark contrast with all of these faithless responses. The wickedness of the Pharisees and even the weak faith of the disciples. The faith of this woman is going to refresh the Lord. Mark's account of this, Mark's account is the only other account of this history, tells us that one of the reasons the Lord went to Tyre and Sidon is to rest. And rest not only physically and emotionally, but to rest in the faith that God would give to this woman a refreshment for his soul. Her faith ought to be a refreshment for us here too tonight. Doesn't God use the humble, real, deep, persistent faith of another in the body of Jesus Christ at times to refresh us? And doesn't he even use it sometimes to rebuke us, beloved? There are few things more beautiful, more humbling, more God-glorifying than simply seeing the simple, uh, true, and genuine faith of another child of God. And that's what's in this woman. Her faith is deep. It's humble. It's in the Lord Jesus Christ alone. Her desire is simply for His mercy, even if it's but a crumb. May God teach us, may he strengthen us, refresh us as we examine her God-given faith tonight under the theme, faith for a crumb. Let's notice first an exposed faith, second a beautiful faith, and third an answered faith. Faith for a crumb, exposed faith, beautiful faith, and an answered faith. In that parallel account in Mark chapter 7, we learn that when the Lord got to the region of Tyre and Sidon, he entered into a house. We don't know anything about this house. Was it the house of someone that he knew? Was it the house of someone who knew him, or at least had heard of him and so invited him in? Or was it a kind of public house where you could purchase some food? We don't know. But in any case, while he was there in this house, this Gentile woman from this Gentile land in which the Lord now is, and this woman who somehow knows about the Lord Jesus Christ, about his preaching, quite deep about the content of his preaching and his miracles, sees that he is there and comes and falls at his feet, crying out to him to heal her daughter. Lord, help me. Jesus' response to this woman, as recorded in our text, 
is one of the strangest things in the entire New Testament. At least on the surface of it. In fact, you won't find anything like it anywhere else in the New Testament. It finds no parallel in the life and ministry of our Lord as recorded in the Scriptures. Generally, if someone came to the Lord Jesus in humbleness of heart, knowing their own unworthiness, their own neediness, and with faith in Him, He was compassionate, responded to them with pity. To be sure, He had harsh words that were something like what He speaks here. For the Pharisees, who are so full of pride and stubbornness, and who would not humble themselves before him, but for someone who was broken and humbled, he received them warmly and was happy to heal those who came to him that way or who were brought to him that way. Luke 4, verse 40, Now when the sun was setting, all they that had any sick with divers diseases brought them unto him, and he laid his hands on every one of them, and healed them. And then, in our chapter, right after our text, in verse 30, this is why I read past our text, through verse 31. What do we read? Verse 30, And great multitudes came unto him, having with them those that were lame, blind, dumb, maimed, and many others, and cast them down at Jesus' feet, and he healed them. But to this woman... He seems to be so cold and, let's be honest, mean, downright rude as he interacts with her. There are three stages to the interaction of our Lord with this woman. And in each stage, the Lord's response to her gets progressively more frigid. First, He simply ignores her. Doesn't say a word. In verse 22, she cries out, Have mercy on me, O Lord, thou son of David. My daughter is grievously vexed with the devil. And that, of course, right there would be the point where the Lord would normally respond to someone with compassion and with pity. But what do we read in the next verse, verse 23? But he answered her, Not a word. How cold this seems to be. How rude. This poor woman is needy and she's crying out to him. And in the original language, we learn that she's repeatedly doing this. She's not just saying that once, but she's crying out to him again and again, as it were, trying to get his attention. Have mercy on me, O Lord. My daughter is possessed of a devil, the son of David. Have mercy on me. Have mercy on me. And she's probably crying as she's speaking repeatedly. And the Lord just ignores her. What's going on here? If he gives her cold silence in the first stage of their interaction, in the second, he gives her the cold shoulder. The disciples eventually tire of her repeated cryings. 
And they say to the Lord, just send her away. Just turn to her and just tell her to go away. We're, we're tired of her screaming and crying out all the time. Verse 23, and his disciples came and besought him, saying, send her away, for she crieth after us. And it seems in the next verse like the Lord takes the disciples' word and does just that. Verse 24 is not spoken to the disciples. It's spoken to the woman. So finally, he speaks to her, and this is what he says, verse 24. I am not sent, but unto the lost sheep of the house of Israel. How cold. You're a Gentile woman in a Gentile land. You are a woman of Canaan, verse 22 says. It doesn't even use the word Gentile, but a woman of Canaan. A part of this land that when the Israelites came in, they were supposed to clear. You're a part of this, this pagan nation. And the Lord says, I was not sent by my father to the Canaanites. I was sent to the Jews. And that, of course, is true, generally speaking. The Apostle Paul would say it later in Romans 15, verse 8. Now I say that Jesus Christ was a minister of the circumcision for the truth of God, to confirm the promises made unto the fathers. Jesus was sent to be a minister of the circumcision, of the Jews. He was supposed to come to the Jews and minister in the three years of his public ministry to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. He was born, as Revelation 12 tells us, out of the womb of the Old Testament church and was to come to that Old Testament church especially. To be sure, of course, he was the light that would lighten the Gentiles. What old Simeon in the temple recognized about him when that old man took the baby Jesus in his arms was true. Lord, now let us thy servant depart in peace according to thy word, for mine eyes have seen thy salvation, a light to lighten the Gentiles, as he quotes from the prophecy of Isaiah. That's true, but that would not come until after the death and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, then that middle wall of partition would be broken down between Jews and Gentiles. Then the Great Commission would come. Then the light of the gospel of this Jesus Christ would go beyond the borders of Israel to every nation, tribe, and tongue. But his ministry in his life, his own public ministry, was to be to the Jews in the main. Not that he could not speak to a Gentile or, or give witness to a Gentile, but in the main, his ministry was to the Jews. And so he turns to this woman and says, but you're not a Jew, and therefore I'm not sent to you. Go away. But she doesn't go away. She continues crying. And she continues pleading. And she will not leave. And so the Lord, after giving her cold silence, 
and a cold shoulder gives her finally cold jab. Verse 26. It is not meat. It is not fitting. It is not appropriate to take the children's bread and to cast it to dogs. Oh. Did he just Yes. He did. He calls her a dog. Speaking of all the Gentiles, but to her, this Gentile who is before him, pleading, Lord, hear me. Lord, help me. This is, this is utterly astounding. What is going on here? Many people like to point out that the Greek word that the Lord uses for dog here refers specifically to a small dog. And so an attempt to defend the Lord, I suppose, they try to argue that, well, he's not talking about some mangy, stray mutt roaming the streets, but he's, he's talking about a small dog. And since he uses the illustration of, of children and crumbs, it's probably a pet dog, a dog that's loved very much. Fine. That could be possible, I suppose. But a dog's a dog. And he called her a dog. The Gentiles, the Lord is saying, are pagans. And the benefits of the covenant of grace, that covenant of which I have come to be the ground of, which I, as the ground of that covenant, am given of God to dispense the mercies and blessings of that belongs to the children of the covenant. That belongs to those historically speaking at this time who are the Jews, who are of the nation of Israel. That bread cannot be taken off of their table and given to you, you Gentile. The bread, of course, in Jesus' illustration, is the blessings of the covenant. It doesn't belong to you. It belongs to them, historically, to Israel. And of course, this was true too in general terms at this point because he had not died and risen again. At the beginning of Romans 9, the Apostle Paul says it, For I wish that I myself were accursed of Christ for my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom pertaineth the adoption and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the service of God and the promises, whose are the fathers and to whom concerning the flesh Christ came 
To the Jews, to the Israelites, pertained these things, objectively speaking. They were housed there, carried there throughout history for them. They were the people of God throughout the Old Testament. They were the children. This was the children's bread, the covenants, the law, the promises. Fathers, and you can't expect me to just take the bread for the children and now give it to the dogs. How would that be right? This is, this is something else. Why does the Lord treat this woman with such cold and rude language? Some liberal theologians and preachers will tell you that the reason why Jesus does this is because you're seeing the cracks in who he is. And here, you find out that Jesus really is not sinless at all, that he is a sinner. Here's the proof that Jesus sinned. He was tired. He didn't want this woman there. He was annoyed with her. And so he is mean and rude and racist to her. And blasphemy, though, that is to say about the Lord. That's the teaching of liberal theologians. Other more liberal theologians and preachers won't go so far as to say that Jesus sinned in this instance, but they'll say that Jesus made a mistake. And he made a mistake because Jesus was narrow-minded. He was xenophobic at this point in his life. He was narrow-minded about the fact that the gospel would have some significance beyond the Jews. He didn't know that. And this woman really taught that to the Lord Jesus, that she broadened his mind by what she did here. That the Lord was genuinely here not thinking that any Gentile could ever possibly receive what he had to say. And she proved him wrong. And she opened him up to the possibility that his word would maybe have an effect beyond the Jews to other parts of the world. Let me quote. Jesus was converted that day to a larger vision of the commonwealth of God. End quote. And again, quote, Jesus came to believe what the Gentile woman taught him. End quote. This is sheer unbelief. And it's sheer unbelief that doesn't even take into account the facts of the case or of the Scriptures. The Lord knew very well, beloved, that the Gospel was going to go to the ends of the earth. That He was a Messiah. Not just for Jews only, but also for Gentiles. This was not news to Him. This was all over the prophets. He taught his disciples this eventually. The Great Commission was not something that he was unaware of at this point in his life. He didn't have to be taught this. But there were people who were with him who had to be taught this. And that's the point. It was the disciples who must learn this. 
that the word of God is going to go beyond the borders of Israel and that God is going to send his spirit ahead of them and that he will begin working and that there will be faith in his own from every nation, tribe, and tongue. In Matthew 15, the Lord Jesus is getting closer to the end of his ministry, closer to the time when he will die upon the cross. In fact, in the very next chapter, he informs his disciples about his impending death. And the Lord is now turning his thoughts to the time when after he is gone, to the time when his disciples must now carry this word from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the uttermost parts of the earth. And he understands that he must prepare them for this. That though it is not his main calling to go to the Gentiles, it will be their main calling after this. And he's showing them there's going to be faith among these Gentiles. Astounding faith that God works in them. So astounding that in spite of the way that Jews think of Gentiles, in spite of the way that they are treated by Jews, that faith will be strong in them. To highlight this further, back in chapter 10, verse 5, the Lord sent the disciples out on a preaching tour throughout Israel. And he explicitly told them not to go to any Gentile, to avoid any Gentile. In fact, he used the same language, Matthew 10 Five and six, these twelve Jesus sent forth and commanded them, saying, Go not into the way of the Gentiles, and into any city of the Samaritans. Enter ye not, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And that was in line with the beginning of his ministry. But now it's getting close to the time when their ministry will expand. And they must have some exposure now to see that God works in his elect from outside of Israel. That's why he came here in the first place, to show them her faith. This explains then why he speaks to her the way that he does. It's not because he thinks all of these things about her. It's not because he has this in his heart towards her. This is for the disciples' education. He's speaking to her the way that he knows they are thinking about her and that any Jew would think about her. Jews always called Gentiles dogs. This was not anything new. This was the term they used for them. And he's showing them that even though they think of these people as dogs, God has his children here. Astounding lesson for them. The Lord knows the hearts of all men. John 2, verse 25, And he needed not that any should testify of any man, for he knew what was in man. And the Lord knew what was in this woman's heart. He knew how great her faith was, how resilient that faith was. And the way he speaks to her is the occasion for that faith to come out. He's exposing what is in her before his disciples. How would they know the depth of humility that is in her before him and before God? How would they know the persistence of her faith? 
except he speaks to her this way, would they not think that this is just some woman who maybe heard, like other people in Israel had heard, that he's a miracle worker. And it's only in speaking to her this way that they will see there is something going on in this woman that is astounding, a work of God that even we cannot deny. They had troubles with going to the Gentiles, even after this, all the way through the book of Acts, beloved. This was so ingrained in them. The Lord had to teach them this. Sometimes he has to teach us this. And outside the borders of the covenant community, he can draw his people out of paganism, out of the darkest points of unbelief, and to himself. And in the end, isn't that what he's done with you? Are you any better by nature? Any less unbelieving in your heart by nature? Do you come here tonight in the humility of this woman before the face of your God and your Christ. Lord, help me. And I'm not going to stop saying it. And I'm not going to go away. Help me. The woman's response, the coldness of the Lord is astounding. 99.9% of people would have been so utterly offended by what the Lord said to this woman that they would have left in a huff of anger and pride. Here is the man who is supposed to be friend of sinners. Well, I certainly heard wrong. This is no friend of sinners speaking to me like this. How dare he? Who does he think he is? But this woman's God-given faith, beloved, burns bright and burns warm as the Lord knew it would and knew it would when exposed by his rude and cold treatment of her. Let's take her three responses to the Lord in the opposite sequence. First, In contrast to that cold, final jab of the Lord, the woman responds with a warm humility. Verse 26, the Lord had said to her, it is not meet to take the children's bread and to cast it to the dogs. And here's her response, verse 27, immediately. And she said, and we read this, beloved, but does it it sink in really? Who would say this? Think about what any human being would say in response to just being told that you're a dog. And then read what she says. Truth, Lord. 
that the dogs eat the crumbs which fall from the master's table? Could pride have said such a thing? The natural response is is to immediately be puffed up. How dare he? But instead of bucking what he says and instead of pushing him away and walking away herself, she embraces the offensive statement and absorbs it and even owns it and she does not skip a beat. The response of her heart is not dog. Who do you think you are? I'm no dog. And if you're finally not going to give me what I want, then then fooey on you, I'm gone. Truth, Lord. It's true. Spiritually speaking, I don't have a thing to offer you. And it's true. The adoption and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the service of God and the promises were given to the Jews. And I am no Jew. I am a Gentile. And I am nothing but a sinful woman, a wretch, a lowly dog in thy sight. You know, you really can't demean the children of God spiritually, can you? Because in their own mind, they're already down there by nature. It's different in Christ, of course. But looking at themselves by nature, they're already there. I'm nothing. And I have nothing. Who am I but a dog in my sight? Is this you? Your confession about yourself by nature, apart from Jesus Christ, Utterly void, utterly empty, worthless spiritually before Jehovah God. This is what the Reformed faith says about you, you know. This is the doctrine of total depravity. Nothing spiritually utterly bankrupt. Nothing to bring to him. Nothing to turn his face towards me. Nothing that would make him say to me, but you are worthy to stand in my presence and to receive of my grace. There's other systems of theology, not biblical ones, but other ones you can turn to that will give you a whole lot more. That will tell you that you play your part, that you contribute, that you have something in yourself. This one? Spiritually, you're like a dog before him with nothing to bring. More importantly, this is what the scriptures say. This is what Jesus says about you and me spiritually by nature. In him, a whole other matter. Apart from him, nothing. I'm a dog before thee spiritually and deserve nothing from thee. And yet, Lord, sometimes the dogs get a crumb. Do you have a crumb for this dog? 
Not worthy even of that. But is there a crumb of mercy for me? Sometimes masters will will sweep the leftovers, the the crumbs off the table after the children have eaten and have gone and and they'll sweep them onto the floor and the dog, no, no master forbids the dog then from coming and eating the crumb. Is there a crumb, Lord? And sometimes, Lord, the children when they're eating, they don't really know what they have in front of them or how privileged they are or how blessed they are. And sometimes they take it for granted, Lord, and sometimes they're presumptuous about what is right before them, Lord. And in their messing around, sometimes some crumbs fall into the ground. And no master would, for, would forbid a dog from coming and just, just licking up one of those crumbs. Maybe there's a crumb. Maybe you left the table of Israel to come up here. Bring a crumb of your grace to tire and decide on. A speck of mercy for an undeserving sinner. Warm humility in contrast to the cold jab. Second, Notice her warm appeal in spite of the Lord's cold shoulder. Verse 25, Then came she and worshipped him, saying, Lord, help me. She fell down before him. Got on her knees or flat on her face, grabbed his feet, kissed his feet, cast herself upon him. Lord, help me. You can read all the dogmatics books from all the history of the church. Beloved, and it's important that those dogmatics are there, the faithful ones at least. You can learn what all of those dogmatics have to say about faith and that'd be a good thing to do. You would learn much. But they couldn't summarize faith any better than this. Lord, help me. I have nothing. And what I need can only come from Thee. And she persists in this, remember. She keeps repeating this over and over again. Her cold sh- the cold shoulder of the Lord does not stop her. The cold jab does not send her away. And neither did His cold silence. Finally, notice her warm confession in contrast to the Lord's Silence. What makes her faith so humble so that she sees herself spiritually as a dog before him? And what makes her faith active, living, persistent so that she casts herself upon him again and again and will not be refused though he sends her away? It's not only, beloved, that she knows herself, but it's also that she knows him. Have mercy on me, O Lord, thou son of David. This is her warm confession. And of course, Lord can either be a term of respect or it can be a title of confession that he is the Messiah. But son of David, only one option for that. 
It's a confession that he is the Messiah, the Christ, sent of Jehovah God, and a confession made in a very Jewish-like fashion. Thou, son of David, somehow this woman knows the scriptures. Somehow she knew the prophecies that declared that the Messiah would come from the line of David, David's son. She understood. She understood that before her was God come down in human flesh, right there before her. And he is the only one who is able to give her any help or any sustenance. And she is nothing before him in his sight. She is but a dog. And yet he is the Savior full of mercy. Because not only does she know that this is the Messiah, sent of God and Lord, but that the Messiah is merciful. And so she repeats it over and over again. Have mercy on me, O Lord, thou son of David. This I know too. The Messiah is merciful to sinners who know their sin. And so I'm not going to stop. She casts herself continually upon him because she knows this about him. And no matter what you say to me, I know this about you. So when she has nothing else to appeal to, She can't appeal to her Jewish background. She can't say, Lord, I'm an Israelite to whom belongs historically the adoption and the covenants and the promises. She can't appeal to the child's right to the master's table. But she can appeal to this. I know who you are. And you are merciful. To sinners. And she will cast herself upon him and upon him alone, knowing who she is and who he is. We live in a culture, beloved, that like never before, is a culture of entitlement. I deserve. A culture where every participant gets a trophy because they're entitled to it just for being there. Where every citizen is entitled to this or to that. Of course. I exist. And this can come into the church too. And the tendency becomes to think, I deserve this from the church. I want this. I'm entitled to this. And if I don't get it, then fooey on the church. And it can come into our relationship to God, can't it? So that though we would never say it out loud, of course, or in any terms like that, it starts to affect us. And the way we interact with God, the way we think of God in our relationship with Jehovah God. in our prayer life, 
that we'd never say it even in our prayers, in the soul. But I'm entitled to this, God. I deserve this. Or I'm not entitled to this, God. May it not be in you. May it not be in me. As we come to the Lord tonight, as we come to the Lord repeatedly throughout our life, so that we take His grace for granted, take His mercy to be something to which we have the right, so that we begin to talk about grace while gutting the essence of what grace is. If I am entitled to it, it is not grace. It's undeserved. May our faith, beloved, be a casting faith that then seeing that I deserve nothing from him, nothing, that I am entitled to nothing from him, for I, by nature, am a son of Adam, and I have forfeited every rights. And in my own life, I've manifested that over and over and over again. And out of my desperate need, my spiritual bankruptcy by nature, I cast myself upon the Lord Jesus because I know who he is. That he is the son of David and he's merciful And so I cry to him again and again, Lord, help me. Lord, have mercy upon me. And I don't go away and I don't stop and I keep persisting again and again because I'm not appealing to anything in myself. Not on the basis of who I am, O God, of my standing, of my gifts, of my intelligence, of my abilities, of my insights, of my background, of who my parents are or my grandparents, of how much work I've done in the church. I don't appeal to my race, my ethnicity, nothing. Except that I know who you are. And so I cry to you, have mercy upon me. Just a crumb, Lord. For this dog, just a crumb. That's faith. That's humble, convicted, persistent, and beautiful faith. And may it not only be yours, but may it be the God-worked faith of the children and the grandchildren and the generations of the church too. The children of the covenant, the children of the church, to whom, in a way, belong the covenant and the promises and the adoption, that they might, under the teaching and the preaching of the word as they grow, 
embrace, understand, and apply themselves to this Christ by the God-given, God-worked faith growing in them so that they say, when they come to years of discretion, Lord, help me. Help me. I'm but a dog before thee. I'm nothing. What can I bring to thee, Lord? Have mercy upon me. I'm a sinner in need of grace. Remember that this woman's appeal to the Lord is ultimately for her daughter. Lord, heal my daughter. My daughter is grievously vexed by a devil. And every adult, every parent, every grandparent, every uncle, every aunt, every cousin, every brother or sister in Christ must say this, cry out to the Lord for the children of the church. Lord, they're vexed by the evil one. They grow up in this age in which we live. And the devil's influence is palpable. It's palpable all around and increasing in shamelessness and strength. Lord God, deliver them, I pray, and grant to them this faith, real faith, that they would know thee as the son of David, that they would call thee Lord of their life, that they would cry out to thee again and again and not stop. I am nothing in myself. Lord, help me. Give me grace. Give me a crumb of thy mercy to a dead dog such as me who deserves nothing. And grant it to them, Lord, and heal them and deliver them and preserve them. The Lord granted the request of this woman's faith. He granted the request right in front of the disciples And how this must have cut them to the quick. They had to have been absolutely astounded by what was going on in front of them, by what was coming out of this woman's mouth, but how it cut at them too. They had been hearing from the Lord things like, why are you doubting? Why is your faith so weak? Over and over again. And now this woman gets this from the Lord. Woman, great is your faith. Because this is great faith in the eyes of God, beloved. A deep humility at the knowledge of one's own unworthiness and a continuous casting of oneself upon the Lord Jesus Christ alone is the only one who can help deliver free from the guilt and the power of sin on the basis not of anything in me, but on who he is. In the way of that God-given faith, this woman found healing that very hour. O woman, great is thy faith. Be it unto thee, even as thou wilt. And her daughter was made whole from that very hour. May we hear such a word from the Lord Jesus Christ, ourselves 
and our children after us. Coming to him, coming to him in worship, out of our need, repeatedly, over and over again, casting ourselves upon him. In that way we do here. I gave it to you. But given, it's yours. Great is your faith for depending not one ounce upon yourself, but upon me and me alone. And I heal you at this hour and you come back again and I heal you at this hour and I heal you at this hour and this hour. No dog in your connection to me but a child, a son and a daughter. Welcome to the table, but not just a crumb, but a loaf of all the blessings that I've earned for you. In that way, beloved, assured that as the Lord Jesus came from a faraway place to this far-off land, to show mercy to a dog. That he came from his throne above to this pagan place to show mercy to a dog such as me. It's grace. Praise be to him. Amen. Father, bless thy word to our hearts and strengthen our faith. To thee be all praise for it. In Jesus' name.